Welcome to Talking in This Climate, a series where we discuss the different aspects of talking about climate change and environmental issues. We're a mix of environment students, graduates, and environmental communication professionals who are really interested in how we talk about climate in this climate. Each episode, we'll dive into a different theme, looking at things like language, the media, communicating through frames and metaphors, Indigenous perspectives on environmental issues, communicating across disciplines, issues of trust and misinformation, emotion, and how we can ultimately strive to become more mindful listeners, communicators, and agents of change. We're so excited for this journey and so grateful that you're here traveling with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the significance of misinformation and disinformation in terms of climate change, what they are, how they're manufactured, and what its impacts may be, and how we can potentially protect against the negative effects of misinformation and disinformation. So mis- and disinformation may be potentially one of the most influential factors for why the global response to climate change still doesn't seem to have kept up with where the science is saying we need to be to avert further catastrophic impacts. As we speak, people are losing their homes, their livelihoods and their lives due to intensifying weather and climate. And the scientists are saying it's pretty much now or never if we want to avert further losses. The latest IPCC report released last week is unequivocal. We need to take urgent action now to curb global heating. Every microfraction of a degree does matter, which means every action matters too. But one of the things still alive at a wider cultural, social and political scale across the world, which is working against much of what we need right now, is the spread of misinformation and disinformation of climate change. So mis- and disinformation casts doubt and it sullies climate action either by denying the reality of climate change itself or misframing the problems and therefore misframing the types of solutions that we think might be available. So this is at a time when I think we probably need it most, um, the solutions, I mean, to to, to combat mis- and disinformation. Uh, I think it's a very pertinent time to start talking about this topic, so here we are. Um, I would like to welcome and introduce the podcast crew who are here tonight. Uh, say hello, everyone. So we have Emily. Hi, everyone. Ewan. Hi, everyone. Fani. Hey, everyone. Zoe. Hello. And Rosie as well. Rosie will be contributing in the background for this episode, but she is very much here and I uh, want to thank her for all her contributions to the planning for this episode and for being here as well tonight. I would also like to acknowledge that I am recording tonight from the country of Wurundjeri Wurrung peoples, who are the traditional custodians of this land that I'm calling from, and pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their elders of all nations, past, present and future. Yeah, I'll, I'll just quickly say that um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording from Gadigal land here in Redfern. Um, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging here. Thanks, Ewan. 
All right. So in this conversation, we are referring to a Carbon Brief article titled How Climate Change Misinformation Spreads Online. And this is from the 26th of June, 2020. The article was written by Kathy Treen, who at the time was a PhD candidate in the Computer Science Department at the University of Exeter, Dr. Highwell Williams, Associate Professor in Data Science at the same university, and Dr. Safran O'Neill, Associate Professor in Geography at the University of Exeter. And we thought that it might be most useful for you guys listening at home if we just gave you the definitions of what we mean when we say misinformation and when we say disinformation. So when we refer to misinformation, we're referring to misleading information that is created and spread regardless of whether there is an intent to deceive. So misinformation is misleading information created and spread regardless of the intent to deceive. Disinformation, on the other hand, is misleading information that is created and spread with the intent to deceive. So the difference between them is about the intent to deceive. Both refer to misleading information. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into how that plays out in practice and how we understand and interpret that as well. In terms of climate, and just setting the scene here before we jump into our discussion, disinformation in climate has been going on for decades and it has been deliberate and coordinated and strategic. Uh, the aim or the aims of disinformation broadly uh, in climate disinformation campaigns and misinformation campaigns has been to undermine scientific evidence of the risks and impacts of climate change and to paralyze people essentially with doubt about the realities of climate change. And in the article, they highlight three main themes of this doubt. So first is reality of climate change. They try to undermine that. The second is the urgency of how quickly we need to respond to climate change. And the third is about the credentials of climate scientists. Having said that and set the context and set the scene a little bit for this discussion, why do we think talking about misinformation and disinformation is worthwhile? Why is this important? Um, does anyone have any opinions of the role of disinformation in climate and how it's had an effect on our ability to respond? Any opening thoughts? I think information regardless of whether it's regarding climate or anything else and truthful information is something really important to have as a society because if if we can't have a common ground on what the truth is then there's there's a real potential harm in people not believing in anything i guess so i think in general having information that's true reliable and verifiable is really important and in terms of climate information I think having trusted sources of information like IPCC and others serve as a valuable point for people who want to learn more about the science of climate change. Yeah, I think your word verifiable is an interesting one, Fani. So the IPCC reports, I suppose, are supposed to be the epitome of like independent, rigorous collective, verifiable information supported by 
experts and data and all that kind of thing, yet misinformation and disinformation campaigns still have an enormous effect on the credibility of uh, authorities like the IPCC. Why do we think misinformation has continued to succeed and spread, even if you know some a group like the IPCC has this overwhelming amount of evidence that is verifiable and in, in our minds is credible and trustworthy? Well, the world is a very big place, Tim. And um, I think it's also important to note that um, in, in 2019, 212 environmental activists were killed. So that's four people a week who have been killed for sharing climate information, for advocating for change. And it's a big world. And I think that comprehending climate change and comprehending the solutions and actions that we need to take collectively and globally threaten people's ways of life and threatens their safety, both in action and action. Unfortunately, currently, action really um, impacts and affects the way of life of many with a lot of money and a lot of power. And so they can utilize that money and power to protect themselves rather than protect the millions, if not billions of people who are impacted without action, who don't necessarily have that amount of money or power to affect what they want despite public opinion demanding action. And so I do, I do riddle you that as well, Tim. I've just made a very big point. And then I'm going to be like, I don't think that mis- and disinformation are succeeding because the majority of the population in the world do believe in climate change and do want action. And I think it's really important to state that and to know that mis- and disinformation are not succeeding at a, at a community level. But the problem is, is that individuals are only responsible for like 14% of global greenhouse emissions. And so it's really like organizations and, you know, companies that we need to listen. And unfortunately, many of us are just um, working really hard to keep our, you know, to keep a roof over our head and our families safe. And so many of us need to work for these companies. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a very complicated space. Yeah, it definitely is. I think, Zoe, um, our, we maybe differ in terms of how we define success or like impact of misinformation. So I suppose I was speaking at a pretty very broad level and this idea that to me, if missing disinformation weren't successful, we would be on track to limiting global heating to safer levels. To me, this idea that we're still not collaborating at an international level to be on track, according to the IPCC, of reining in that temperature rise and other changes in biodiversity loss and things. To me, that that in part is the success of these misinformation campaigns, which are trying to protect business as usual. Whereas your your definition of success is different. Uh, I think you're talking about uh, the idea of convincing the masses and the majority of people and that kind of thing. I suppose my argument is more that the effects of mis and disinformation are still very much present. And there's a lot of inertia 
um, that makes it very difficult to to mobilize the scale of people and companies and governments that we need at the moment. It's working against us still. That's my that's where I guess I'm coming from. Um, I agree that I think the majority of people in the world, you know, want action, believe in climate change, all these types of things. But there's still something there, um, I think, where there's a lot of doubt still circulating. And the article actually talks a lot about how that happens on social media and how social media and the internet can be a bit of a, a catalyst for these things. But we'll get into that, I'm sure. I think it comes down to, to profit at the starting point, and that's more the, from the disinformation end of it. But there are very large and powerful vested interests in the world, companies and governments, that will have to sacrifice something to do something about climate change and to mitigate the effects of climate change that's already happening. And they don't want to lose money. So they don't need to convince the majority of people that climate change isn't real. They just need to plant a seed of doubt. And that sort of happens from a very purposeful and very um, thought out level. And then it gets into people's social networks online and through word of mouth and it spreads from people that maybe, and that's more of your misinformation side. So I really think that the two work hand in hand and that it, it begins from a motive of not wanting to lose money and not wanting to lose a, a position of power and and that the people that end up spreading that misinformation maybe don't have those same motives, but that's that's where it begins in terms of climate mm. change, in my opinion anyway. I think also you and like you raise a good point there that it's um to with like protecting the the vested interests. But I don't think that it is always like spreading the seed of doubt because as we've all seen with so much of the greenwashing that happens now and things being um, marketed and perceived and like narrated mm. to have positive impacts for the world and for the environmental movement don't always seem to. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a very odd tone to deliver that message. Um <laughs> But I, I think that plays into it as well. And so to understand what what is actually mm. um, going to be damaging and increasing greenhouse gas emissions and understanding what isn't is also a really confusing place because um, organisations and the, like the powers that be can, can market things as greenwashing and, um, well, not market things as greenwashing, <laughs> Um, that market things as being sustainable or achieving these effects and then you find out with a deeper research that actually these things that you've integrated into your daily life aren't actually minimizing greenhouse gas emissions. So I think there's like a two, there's a, there's a more than two, it's a multi-pronged. Mm. So I guess one of the interesting things that I wouldn't mind delving into a little bit deeper is what we think of as misleading. So when we're defining Mis and disinformation both refer to misleading information. And Zoe shared uh, a really interesting article today with our group called uh, Climate Scientists' Concept of Net Zero is a Dangerous Trap, which was published in The Conversation on the 22nd of April this year. So 
in some ways, this concept of net zero, which gets used very regularly in policy and targets when we're talking about climate action and we're talking about goals. Yet this concept itself, which is so widely used and, you know, with good intention, I'm sure, can actually be potentially misleading as well. But yeah, often without the intent. So do we classify that as misinformation because it can be misleading? Or is this just part and parcel of the general critique of concepts that we are constantly having to evolve to be effective? Are we saying that it's misleading to to imagine that if we get to net zero, then that will solve all of our climate issues? Is that the premise of, of what you're saying? I think that's part of it. That it could be it could be misleading to present that as as sort of all we need to do, and maybe perhaps that we don't need to do anything outside of that to to restore the world to some sort of balance environmentally. Yes, I think that's the essence of it, and that the intentions and it's an interesting example. I think the intention as well with the net zero target is that it can also disproportionately emphasize the technological uh, solutions and this idea that the problem is this singular emissions only focused issue and yeah like you said Ewan that if we were to reach net zero that all of our problems would be solved and you know all of the inertia built up in the climate system and all these thresholds that have been crossed which simply just not you know not have happened or reverse which is which is not the case and can be misleading so I think my position on it would be the concept of net zero can be misleading. Uh, it's not necessarily misleading. It, it would depend on how it's sort of being used. But if this term is perpetuating as a regular part, a regular concept which we rely on to explain how we're supposed to be working together towards our goals to improve the climate, then, yeah, it, it could potentially have negative impacts and cause people to you know, associate the problem with just emissions and rely too heavily on technological solutions while ignoring yeah other other aspects of the problem so i think also with the notion of of any kind of offset as well the reason that it it can be quite dangerous even when you're talking about carbon offsetting or biodiversity offsetting. So biodiversity offsetting is like if you're going to be clearing land to be developing something, anything on it, and then you create like this offset somewhere else and you're going to like do something good that offsets this loss of biodiversity or this, you know, increase in emissions. And whilst like at some point in time perhaps your offset might equal the losses that you originally made happen, your offset doesn't actually necessarily equate to the damage that has been done, to the emissions that have been burned then and there, to the habitat that has been lost. And so I think that's another like really um, important thing to highlight when we are talking about offsetting is that just that the ecosystem really doesn't it doesn't work the same as our calculators or as maths simply does you can't just move it between you know net profit and net loss and then equal out at the end yeah 
And the word fungible comes to mind, which is something which I, I've just had to look up the definition. But um, it's, it's, it defined, it's defined as something which is replaceable by another identical item or something which is mutually interchangeable. Mm. And what you're saying is that they're just not. That's just not how the world works. To guarantee that that like, family of birds is going to nest in that tree that you planted to replace the lovely old tree with lots of lovely hollows in it, um, that's, it's just silly and I, I think it's important that, yeah, we acknowledge that the ecosystem, we all know this, we all have friends, parents, favourite trees, they're not replaceable. Yeah, exactly, especially when we're talking about like things which are separated geographically. And we're lucky to have a bit of a resident et- expert on that sort of stuff, um, Emily. So maybe she has comments to that, but I know she might have some other comments as well. I have a lot of comments on that. <laughs> Um, and I think just because it, this is an episode on misinformation, I think I just wanted to make clear that carbon offsets are not biodiversity offsets and biodiversity offsets are not carbon offsets. So when we talk about net zero, we're talking about emissions reductions. We're purely talking about, car- about carbon here and not about biodiversity. And so because Zoe was just talking about biodiversity offsets and I completely agree with Zoe there, the like-for-like replacement of ecosystems is a concept that's a bit troublesome and we've um, talked in episode six or seven, I think, about that. Um, so check it out if you, if you feel up for it. But, yeah, carbon offsets, net zero is exactly as Tim said, that's, that's what I do for a living. That's my bread and butter. And um, so obviously I come from our own paradigm and, and that's the language I use on a daily basis um, and I advise on that. So <laughs> maybe as a shout out, this is a little bit sensitive for me to be talking about publicly on a podcast as well. But I think net zero as a term in itself, yes, I agree. It's, it's a little bit troublesome, but I suppose it really connects back to how this is actually being communicated right so i absolutely agree with all the sentiments that were mentioned before but it is really about making clear that carbon neutrality is is not all about just offsetting your emissions or your carbon footprint by purchasing carbon offsets the idea of net zero and becoming carbon neutral is to reduce your emissions as much as you can, and that includes your scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, so all the impacts that your organisation has. Um, you reduce it as much as you can, and then you have anything, well, you have essentially left what's unavoidable and you offset that. Often net zero is it's, it's used as a target just as a starting point, um, I think we, we really have to be mindful of the fact that um, companies, a lot of companies in Australia and worldwide, do want to do good. They want to to action and do the right thing. And the easiest step for them, the first step for them, is to say, "Okay, we're going to commit to um, carbon neutrality. We commit to net zero target," and then we forget how we can do that just to have that commitment out there and then do the actions that are necessary just to kind of get the ball rolling. And that can be a little bit perceiving um, f- for a general audience. Um, but if a, if a company discloses that and says, well, we're just starting the journey, 
uh, we're doing this and this and this and we're going to do this and that, and that in the future and you know have a proper emissions reduction strategy strategy and so on and so forth it's it's really it's really about communicating what you're doing and why and how and 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 it's really about being transparent and providing that additional information connecting back to what we're talking about misinformation it's yeah, things can be really misleading if you don't provide enough context or provide enough information. And if we're talking about net zero, I think it's really pertinent that you communicate as clearly as possible what you're up to do mm. in terms of um, your own individual or as a company, as a company-wide um, climate action sort of ambition. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Em. And I think that, um, to me, sort of highlights that intersection between people companies, governments who are quite genuinely trying to, you know, set targets to be able to mobilize action and mobilize resources. I don't necessarily think that net zeros alone, like decontextualized, is in itself inherently misleading. But I think the article in the conversation does highlight that it can have some limitations as a concept. Um, so no, I think thanks thanks very much for sharing that, Am. I should also highlight that Jacob from our Facebook group. Thank you very much for posting when we put a shout out uh, to the community to ask if there are any topics that you wanted to hear on this episode, and uh, one of them was about net zero being sustainably. So sorry, net zero being sustainable indefinitely. And he asks if we can offset residual emissions indefinitely or is there a limit? So I think we've we've kind of addressed that uh, point. So thank you, Jacob. Um, I should also point out uh, Sue Ryu, who was actually on one of our episodes earlier in the season. Thanks, Sue, for posting. Um, she reminded us that there was a, a documentary, I'm putting that in quotation marks, uh, by Michael Moore on the renewable energy industry and it caused a lot of contra- controversy and became a bit infamous for its misinformation. So those those are some that, that that's a film that some of you might be interested to go and watch from a I guess an academic kind of point of view if you're interested. It's called Planet of the Humans. Uh, it was removed from YouTube. So I don't know where you'd get it these days and I'm definitely not saying that we're trying to condone <laughs> that quote unquote documentary, but out of interest, if you if you like, you can search for it. I hope you don't mind, I might share a story from another one of the posts we got in our community group. Uh, It's from Sophie. She says, I've always been interested, I guess, in imagery, aesthetics and marketing, etc. I had a huge fight with my grandma years ago because she was clinging to the idea that a picture of a polar bear that was being used a lot to represent the climate crisis was from a zoo or something. She says she can't remember the exact details. And therefore, climate change was fake. To me, it was such an absurd link, but to her... It made total sense. I guess why these kinds of images slash red herrings slash conspiracies are so convincing for people um, is her question. So why why are these types of things able to derail people's ability to engage with the realities of climate change? Um, does anyone have any uh, follow-on thoughts from Sophie's comment or similar experiences with their friends or family? Uh, I think it's an interesting example it's an interesting example because I think people in in that case, like Sophie's grandmother, feels like she's in on the truth of the situation because she's pointing out that 
the polar bear doesn't exist or it's not related to actual climate change. So it's a very literal interpretation, I know, but it's that kind of gotcha moment, which I think is a big part of misinformation because people feel like they they can see the real situation that the experts are hiding from the public and that that's why conspiracy theories are so comforting to people, I think, because you feel like you've got that inside knowledge and you're no longer having to be scared by something that doesn't have neat truths to it, like climate change. And there are areas of doubt and areas of, of disagreement and all across different aspects of climate change and how we deal with it. But that's not to say that it doesn't exist. But I think that where you've got doubt or disagreement, then it's more comforting to have an explanation that says, oh, they're just lying or they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And I think that was a very interesting example. Thanks thanks for sharing with us, Sophie. I totally agree with that, even what you said, that people sort of feel like they have the inside information or the inside truth. Because when I was thinking about this comment that Sophie made, it sort of reminded me of the the moon landings in the 1960s being faked because there are still many people who still believe that the moon landings were faked and they have the inside truth on how they were being filmed somewhere in Texas underground or something like that. But it sort of gets into that heart of things where people believe that they have the inside truth. And in the case of moon landings, we don't have such capacity to reach uh, moon or in terms of climate change, believing that humans don't have that capacity to impact things on such a broader scale. So it's sort of this belief in this belief, I guess, sort of fueling this, fueling this thing. Really, really interesting insights. Thanks. I really so, like that sentiment, Fani, of belief and disbelief. I think that a lot of us have um, have like a bit of an internal struggle to think that our actions actually have that much of an impact because it's you know it's quite incredible what what humans have have done <laughs> and you know you can often feel quite small as just one person so I, I think that sentiment, Fani, of belief and disbelief simultaneously is um, really, really resonant with a lot of people. Rather, will really resonate with a lot of people. And I think people who position themselves from an angle of, you know, things like the weather and the way that plants grow and, I don't know, the way that the waves crash are so far outside of my control and human influence perceptibly, how in the world could we actually be affecting these systems? And I think Mark made some comments as well on this thread referring to some of the myths myths that he, he wants us to talk about. So things where people refer to climate change just as quote-unquote natural cycles and this idea of... Uh, attributing responsibility to just solar radiation that climate 
change and global heating is just caused by the sun itself, I think feeds or aligns with what we're sort of discussing here of how people, it's almost unfathomable that people would be able to influence um, such large and complex natural systems that there is that belief and disbelief. And so it leads to to people um, positioning themselves, as Ewan said, in, in a more psychologically safe and socially and kind of culturally and I sort of your own identity-wise a safer position where you become the insider and you're no longer the outsider because you're you're on the in with the information and everything is a conspiracy and it, it alleviates all of that uncertainty which was probably up until that point overwhelming or just unfathomable. The, the disconnect also manifests in different ways like going through school. I mean, this is really embarrassing internet to be telling with you all. Um, but it, it took me into my 20s to discover that um, the water cycle and like the nitrogen cycle that I'd learned at school that, that didn't actually involve human interaction but like humans actually have a role to play in these cycles. And when we divert water or take water away, it, it has an impact on the cycle. And so that disconnect, like that, that one bit of missing information then, you know, misled my whole sort of worldview and understanding of um, the ecosystem drastically. And I think a lot of people can... I'm hoping at least, well, actually, I hope not that a lot of people, I hope that a lot of people don't actually have the same experience that I did because that's a little bit terrifying. But um, I'll just say, I'll quickly fess up to something embarrassing just to you know, make everyone feel better. <laughs> um, so I remember when I was younger, I watched a documentary. I swear this, I'm just going to say this was on the ABC. Or, <laughs> it was on TV. It was on TV. And it was a documentary, all right? It was on TV. It was a documentary. This is before Netflix. Um, and it was it was on the moon landing. And they were going through, like, you know, each uh, set between the ads, between the ad breaks was, like, a different argument for why the moon landing was faked. And um, being incredibly naive at the time, there was one section on the flag, uh, when they planted the flag. Um, and I believe... The, the flag itself moved, like it waved mm. as if it were in the wind. And I was like, and the, they were saying, oh, there's no wind in space. How can, how can the flag be moving? Of course it's faked. And I was like, at the time I didn't have the, the understanding of physics and just I was very naive. And I was like, oh, wow, I just couldn't, I couldn't find a hole in that argument, even though it was just purely misleading and, you know, pure disinformation and conspiracy theory. The answer for those who are curious is because of, I think, the energy from the vibration after they planted the flag. It has to travel somewhere and it traveled up through the poles to the flag and that's what caused its wave. So it wasn't from wind, I think. Anyways, um, I guess we're all vulnerable sometimes to, <laughs> to these kinds of things. So I do think that people have landed on the moon, just clarifying <laughs> that. But it was a very convincing documentary, quote-unquote, documentary at the time. So, Yeah, 
I'm just I was just going to say these conspiracy documentaries and everything can be so in, entertaining is the wrong word but you feel like <laughs> you're into something there but it's actually nonsense and it's selling doubt so when when you can't distinguish information and all these stories that uh, conspiracy theorists sell are tapping into this this desire for simplicity where we seek to understand things within our own knowledge boundaries and if it doesn't fit into that knowledge boundary we sort of come to the conclusions rather than attempting to seek more knowledge so i feel like humans innately have this desire to simplify things and i think that's that has a lot to do with how misinformation propagates around every one of us that's really interesting funny very well said funny <laughs> really love that and i really love the the stories that you team and, and sorry shared i think everyone can relate to that and think about an example where they just didn't really properly <laughs> reflect on, on what they were listening to or kind of soaking in in terms of information and um it, yeah I guess sometimes it's it's like my the point that I wanted to make was around trying to be as critical as possible when you um when you're exposed to new information but sometimes you don't even know <laughs> whether you need to be critical or not um I tend to be overcritical so that's not necessarily a good reaction <laughs> because then you try to fact check everything um so I, I guess there has to be sort of a, a healthy balance between questioning what you're reading what you're listening to what someone else tells you um and <laughs> not overdoing it um but yeah it's it's sometimes just pretty hard to tell <laughs> yeah exactly that's such a good point em and i doubt you know anyone would feel comfortable always having that sort of critical almost skeptical eye on information all the time you know it's exhausting and that's why we why we go to places and people and sources that we trust because it's more efficient for us in that sense and that we don't have to go and fat, fact check everything. Um, I do want to say a big thank you to Pierre who posted on this thread in our Facebook group uh, who says he he knows someone from Estonia who created a chatbot that's trying to help people debunk facts about climate misinformation and that is climatearguments.earth for anyone who's interested in having a look. Um, there's a lot of really interesting uh sort of um, sceptic questions on there, which the chatbot can help people answer quickly. So thanks, Pierre. And yeah, that's a good point, Am. It's a really good point. I did want to read out a couple of these before we get to some of the conclusions and talking about what we can actually do about misinformation, disinformation, just because, man, researching for this episode there were some things that made me want to just throw up. I'm not even lying. Like some of the stuff out there, insane. There's this website, Get the Facts Out. And um, I took this from a page of deniers, which this website has done and outed. It's, it's collected public figures who have deliberately or at least was, you know, uh, presenting public mis or disinformation about climate. 
So I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to go through their names and who they are and stuff, but these are very public political figures in the US and a bit of a trigger warning as well for some people. Um, Here's one. So the driver of climate change is most likely the ocean waters and this environment that we live in. The second one is, is this a serious threat? I think we can debate that. I don't know. The third one is, I am a firm believer in sound science. There have been new findings that clearly show the science is not settled on climate change. And this other one, this fourth one is, what about erosion? Every time you have that soil or rock that is deposited into the seas, that forces the sea levels to rise. I especially like the last one. Yeah. It's creative, I think. It is. Like, it's creative. It's, I think it's, you know, it's appealing to people's idea of a bathtub probably and the idea that, you know, when you go into the bath, the water level rises. But, but again, what, what it's doing is it's taking us away from, like, the actual complexity of the system and what's causing sea level rise and all that sort of thing. And like Fani said, people love to simplify, you know, and, and that's where people feel familiar. If they can understand it quickly, they're like, oh, I get it. Of course that must be true. Yes, that's correct. But obviously these four examples are, for me, classic examples of misinformation and potentially disinformation as well. I think another thing that plays into that as well is that pride might be the wrong word, but how, you know, Tim and I, we just shared these, let's say, everyday examples. Um, embarrassing examples (laughs) let's just just say it (laughs) hey my teachers taught me this I I was it it was reputable I had like the water drop guy come in and he taught us all about the water cycle and humans were nowhere we were I've got no excuses Zoe I've got zero (laughs) but I think the other thing is that we don't like admitting when we were wrong and then if you do admit that you were wrong and that you have learned and you have changed your mind, you're also berated for it and sort of no one becomes welcoming of you. And um, we do, you know, we have such, there are such strong lines and many times rightfully so, but when we draw these really strong lines of who's in and who's out of these particular groups, it, it only deepens the division and and it doesn't foster learning and um, debunking together because th- that's the other thing. And what we were talking about before is that um, how net zero can take out the the justice frame from, from climate and um, – I think that's one of the things that I was really conscious of when we were coming into this episode is that the more that we frame these things or these, the more that we frame this as an us and them, the more we will continue to be divisive and, and against each other and not foster learning together and coming together to, to make like a just equitable climate future for all. And I think it's a very important point and something which I've tried to take to heart more over the last Mm -hmm. little while. You know, as we've shared tonight, 
all of us are, are vulnerable to those things and there's no shame in you know in what you may have believed in the past and um, what you choose to believe in the future based on who you are and your worldview and yeah and the realities and of the world and the way that it affects how you feel in terms of do you feel welcome in in a community in a group um, or do you feel like you have to continue to put up barriers around yourself to try and explain away uncertainties or things which seem too big for you i did want to highlight that in this article in the carbon brief how climate change misinformation spreads online which we'll have a link for in the show notes does point us to some solutions so I hope it's all right with everyone if we just quickly go through some of the solutions presented in the article because I think this is the this is the type of stuff that uh, any of us should be thinking of when we're engaging with or when we encounter misinformation or disinformation and you know there are some of these things some of these solutions which are likely to be more within the control of us, ourselves and and others which are maybe outside of our control but nonetheless some things to be aware of which can help us all when we encounter these types of tweets or facebook posts or whatever it happens to be so i'll i'll read through one at a time and and open the floor up for any additional comments or experiences on each of these solutions and the authors argue that there is no one solution to handling misinformation and disinformation in terms of climate change but that there are lots of different strategies to address them and it's that combination of approaches which we actually need to stop misinformation from continuing to disrupt public debate and ultimately actions on climate change so the first solution provided is quite simply education and that specifically is critical thinking techniques they also suggest more climate change education and agnotology which i found to be a really interesting word and because there were so many things in this in the research for this episode that i didn't know i actually wrote a glossary down and this is at the top of my glossary so agnotology is the study of deliberate culturally induced ignorance or doubt particularly through the publication of inaccurate or misleading scientific data so i like to to hope that we're sort of contributing to this aspect of education and helping people think more critically about the information they see online about climate change and hopefully be more aware of the intention and the de- the deliberateness of of this misinformation and disinformation and how it's used to sow doubt and to be more aware of it if you happen to come across a documentary which says that the moon landing was faked any comments on the education part of the solution which i think is a very important one i just wanted to um connect that with what zari said before around learning together i think it's a very very important one um especially when it comes to climate change and to it's such a yeah concept or such an issue that affects everyone very differently and um may have some emotional may trigger some emotional responses um i think it's really important to just not lecture it but have a conversation and and even be really honest about the things that you don't know and the things that you do know though so 
yeah, if, if that's whether when we communicate with others that we can draw that boundary and say like, oh, well, I, I'm not, not an expert in this field, but that's my understanding of it. But I would have to, I don't know, read more on it. Um, you know, it's, it's when, when I think about kind of communication, I don't think necessarily about a classroom or anything like that. I think about everyday conversations. I think about even conversations that I have with clients. I have a couple of clients that are really new to the climate change space. They're really motivated, but um, there are just so many terminologies out there, so many concepts that are super unfamiliar and super confusing, such as the net zero um, <laughs> concept. And and I think it's it's really important to just ask, so, so what is your understanding of it? Um, where can I help you? I can share with you what I know. And um, just the sharing together, learning together, um, as Sarah said, I think that's that's really important when it comes to, comes to climate education. Such a good point, Em. And I think... All of us in this community would would support that uh, learning together, and you know, not not looking down on anyone who may not know, understand, or believe the same thing that you believe, and being really open and having a conversation. Really important. The second solution that is listed is what they refer to as an inoculation, and we're not talking about not talking about vaccines here, but we're talking about how we can preemptively provide correct information and also warn people that they might be misinformed about a particular climate topic or or something and yeah the, i guess the idea with the inoculation strategy is to try and prevent some of the impacts of deliberate misinformation messages or disinformation can be difficult to do but i suppose depending on the type of work or activity that you're doing there might be some really obvious vulnerabilities in terms of your messaging uh, that you may want to provide some uh, upfront information about just to deter any kind of um, uh, mis or disinformation. I think that we talked about it in a previous episode, but it's so important to have the right messenger, particularly yep. if you yourself are not the right messenger to, to speak to people about misinformation, that it doesn't. You can provide all the facts in the world, but if people don't trust you or they don't trust the source, then they're going to ignore it. So I think it's so important that we get the messenger right as well as um, as the message. So it's fantastic to come up with all debunking and and information that we can give to people. But yeah, we we should always always consider how they're going to receive that information, not just throw information at people and expect them to absorb it because we want them to. Precisely, Ewan. And something that um, Blanche raised in our previous episode was talking about how we're not just receiving one message at one time and then we're going to do this thing after that. Like we are receiving so many messages constantly and some are being absorbed and some, some aren't. Great point. And for anyone interested, we did a, an episode on um, messages and the message, um, and it was a really popular episode. I think it's by far the most listened to episode of the podcast so far, um, keeping in mind that we only did just put out the last episode, which was an interview with Zoe and Blanche, which might still beat that episode, but it was a very popular episode. So anyone looking for more information about the messenger and why that's so important. Check that one out. The the third solution that they suggest is actually technological here. So we're talking about 
improvements to algorithms, so platforms online, uh, and also weeding out malicious, malicious accounts. So these kinds of uh, infrastructural or technological changes are probably a whole discussion in themselves. But if they are improved, you know, the algorithms that present information to people's accounts based more on truth rather than on reinforcing those echo chambers where um, beliefs and ideas get reinforced, not necessarily because they're true. And then obviously getting rid of malicious accounts where there are people, bots or real people who are dedicated to spreading uh, mistruths and disinformation. The next solution, the fourth one they talk about is uh, a corrective response, and that is to try and recover from any damage that's caused by misinformation or disinformation. And they call for a collaborative approach, and that is to use the voices of the majority to try and drown out any uh, mistruths or uh, smaller voices um, that are trying to deliberately spread missing disinformation to become the main narrative. And I think that's coming back to where where Emily was reminding us that, you know, learning together and being inclusive is really important for having that network solidarity and being able to identify what knowledge is acceptable and what's actually quite, um, you know, deliberately harmful. And then the fifth one they talk about is comes to regulation, so fines and and laws and potentially even imprisonment for really harmful, deliberate, you know, strategic um, campaigns for disinformation where there's intent to deceive and intent to p- potentially to harm as well. So I just want to uh, reiterate that the authors of this article say or suggest that it is actually a combination of these approaches which are needed. Uh, there is absolutely no silver bullet to addressing uh, climate misinformation and climate disinformation. But we hope that this discussion sheds a little bit more light on what misinformation is and why we should try and keep an eye out for it. The whole intent and the aim of these things is to sow doubt and to undermine our confidence, whereas what we need right now is absolutely the opposite. So if we can be more aware of misinformation and disinformation, call it out when we can and think critically and help each other recognize these things, but in a way that doesn't shame people or humiliate them or feel like they're outsiders or that they don't belong. Yeah, I think speaking on behalf of this whole group, I I hope that our podcast community is very much inclusive and respectful and, you know, would really welcome people who might be brave enough to admit that they they don't know much about climate change or that maybe they are erring on the side of disbelief for whatever reasons. Um, there won't be any kind of humiliation or shaming in our community, uh, I'd like to hope. Um, are there any final comments before we wrap up this episode? I would just like to apologize to everyone again for never providing a silver bullet. <laughs> yeah, you should be sorry, Zoe. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it, and I hope you go and have your own conversations about missing disinformation with people in your networks, and you can be more aware of it and uh, more effective, hopefully, at identifying it when it does come across your world. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. 
This is episode 11 of Talking in This Climate, and we look forward to catching you in episode 12, where I can say we are very excited. We will be interviewing gentleman Harry Lee, who is the maker of a game called Convergence. And for any curious bees out there, you can go and Google this game. Uh, a few of us had a, a playthrough of the game last week, and it was a lot of fun. Very much looking forward to it. So we'll see you again soon. This podcast has been created and produced by Tim, Emily, Fani, Ewan, Zoe, and Rosie, with support from the Climactic Collective. This podcast has been made for educational purposes only, and any advice and information presented is general in nature and does not consider your specific circumstances. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by individuals do not reflect the views of the Climactic Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating as it helps others find us. If you're looking for more podcasts on similar topics, make sure to visit the Climactic Collective website climactic.com.au. Thanks for listening.